Welcome back, everybody. It is another edition of Plain Politics, this partnership between the Star Tribune editorial board and WCCO Radio. As always, John Rash is here. So is DJ Tice, Chad Hartman here from CCO. All right, gentlemen, uh, let's start with uh, an enormous victory, John, for the president yesterday when the Supreme Court in a 5-4 vote upheld the travel ban. You go back to December of 2015 and uh, candidate Trump with the stunning words of calling for a Muslim ban, right, and used it, and it was very effective during the campaign. And then the first rollout wasn't very effective. The second rollout wasn't very effective. The third did work. Where do you stand, John, on how much campaign words and rhetoric should be used and should be applied to law? Because in this case, some of the judges said yes. And some of the other judges said, no, we got to, whether we like that or not, we got to put that aside and we have to deal with the powers that the president has. When people tell you who they are and what they're all about, I think that one should listen, particularly if it's the president of the United States. And indeed, he did use those words and not just as a quick slip or a quick, you know, missive on the side. This was rhetoric that was repeated throughout the campaign and even indeed once he became president. And as you say, Many of the justices who voted in the minority, particularly Sonia Sotomayor, who wrote a searing counter opinion uh, to this, uh, to the majority opinion, cited those words in the overall issue here. And I just think it's quite striking how President Trump is at the center of so much of what happens politically in the United States these days, including this Supreme Court case. and. Yep the Republican Party as a whole, particularly the United States Senate and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, is front and center here as well because in three successive cases, both the travel ban as well as the free speech case yesterday regarding reproductive clinics and then the big union case today, Judge Neil Gorsuch was among, if not the deciding vote here, and of course he has that vote because the Republicans refused to hold hearings on Merrick Garland when he was nominated by President Obama. DJ, I suggested yesterday on my show that I believe the person who had the singular greatest influence in this 5-4 decision was Mitch McConnell because when Justice Scalia passes away in February, Mitch McConnell uses the words from decades before of then-Senator Joe Biden, whether people believe he used them properly or not, That's that was debated often, but that there was no vote, there was no debate, there was no hearing on Garland. And if Garland is there instead of uh, Neil Gorsuch, I think most people believe it would have still been 5-4, but a different way. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that most people believe that. I wouldn't dispute it necessarily myself. I do think, though, that in fairness to the court and indeed in fairness to uh, Judge Garland, we should not be quite so quick to assume that we know how he would 100%. have decided yep. this case sure. because of who appointed him and, and what his political background is. Uh, you know, I think people who think the court is that political need to read more court opinions and uh, get a sense of the thoughtfulness, the depth, the rigor uh, with which uh, all of them, on whatever side they come down on in a given case, uh, address these issues, I, I think they would find it, frankly, uh, somewhat reassuring. So let me, let me just stay with that, because I don't doubt the intellect. I don't doubt the depth. I don't doubt their credentials. 
And a lot of people say what you just said. But then when we look at all the rulings, so often, DJ, they end up falling the way we would expect and the way most people look through the prism of politics. You know, that tends to be very true of some of the most contentious cases that come at the end of, uh, of sessions, yeah. of terms like this. If you look at the range of... Uh, of cases along the along the whole term, I think you would find more surprises yep. in there. Um, you know, for example, uh, there was a very important case about cell phones mm-hmm. and the use that police can make of uh, cell phone data uh, in uh, investigations. Very important privacy case. Uh, the court says that the police need a warrant yep. to find out where <clears throat> you've been via your uh, your cell phone. That case it, was decided by all the conservatives plus Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Meanwhile, there was a four-justice dissent was the rest of the liberals with Chief Justice Roberts writing the dissenting right. opinion. Yeah, that's fair. So, uh, And it, it happens a lot. It happens yep. a lot more than it gets noticed because, frankly— Because of the big ones. Well, fr- and, and we find the political story the easiest yeah. story to tell. Because it matches up with what's going on. So, John, let me circle back to you. The defenders of the president will say, this isn't a Muslim ban. Think of the the huge, the 90-some percent of Muslims who are not affected by this. They will also say some of the key parameters of basing the countries and who was allowed and who wasn't allowed was done by the Obama administration, and they just continued the policies. Is that a fair comeback? It's a fair comeback from the perspective of that's what the justices clearly believed. That's what the administration said. And two nations that were on the list, Venezuela and North Korea, are not majority Muslim nations in any respect. So one could look at the construct of that. But again, people could also listen to what the president directly has said or read what he has tweeted or get a sense of where the administration stands on this in terms of how they were positioning it. So that argument, I think, has a significant amount of validity as well. I do think, and you're talking about how people defend the president here, this is a really good example of how he's able to hold such extraordinary support among his base, because so many people, particularly those in the evangelical community who have looked beyond his personal uh, scandals that he's, he's been involved in and said, what he does with appointments to the court, both Supreme and, mm-hmm. and other lower courts, are one of the prime motivators on why we continue to back him and, and hope he runs and wins re-election here. And here in these cases, which conservatives generally clearly favored the outcome of these three over the last 24 hours, this is validation of that approach and, this support, and their support. I would, I would like to offer just a little bit different way of thinking about the travel ban decision. I, I don't I, – what the court was faced with is the challenge of distinguishing this president from the presidency mm-hmm. and the powers right. of, of that office. I don't think anybody disputes or can possibly dispute that federal law – Longstanding federal law mm-hmm. gives the presidency correct very sweeping powers in this area to uh, to restrict the admission of foreign nationals, basically for any reason the president finds sufficient in a natu- national security sense. That's what the law says. Yeah. Uh, the problem here is if he's done if he's done that in a technically sound way. Mm-hmm. Uh, do the ridiculous things that he says and has said and tweeted 
uh, do they change the powers of the presidency and the constitutional duty of the court to uphold the law? I think that's the crux. The, 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 and the court said, said no, it doesn't. No. But I don't believe any of those five justices approve in the remotest no. way of the nonsense this president has spewed on this subject. All right. Let's stay with the, the union decision today, John, because it's not going to get as much coverage but in the short run and in the long run, just take me through why you think this is so significant. Because under any way that an individual or institutions who are weighing in on this look at it, they think it's going to weaken unions, particularly public sector unions. And these include teacher unions, which you know have been at the forefront of a lot of politics in terms of school choice issues and voucher issues, as an example, and that this, in effect will weaken them, not just in terms of their collective bargaining power, but also their political power. They've been a key component of the Democratic Party for decades at this point. And if fewer people belong to unions, feel less compelled, and you could get into a a vicious cycle here in terms of if they have fewer members, they may be less effective, which means more people may opt out of giving union contributions or or mm-hmm. voluntarily moving forward with, with membership in a union, they're going to become less of a political force. And certainly what they're able to do economically in terms of keeping people in the middle class, they may be less of a force for that as well. So this is something that, you know, when we look, just look east over to Wisconsin and, and the big political upheaval right. that took place within the last few years with Governor Walker there, to some degree, this is making this more nationwide in terms of taking on public sector unions. So I think it's a, a big victory for those who have wanted to do that legislatively or through other measures. And it certainly is going to be perceived as a big victory by President Trump and a lot of Republicans. <clears throat> certainly no denying that the, all of that is right as far as the practical effect of this. Uh, this is a big part of what Scott Walker did in Wisconsin. And it had the very result that people fear, which is once they're not forced to pay, yeah. uh, a lot of people stop paying. Yeah. Uh, and of course, people on the other side of the argument would say, well, that would suggest they don't feel like they're getting their money's worth. <laughs> and given the option, yeah. uh, they don't care to you know, uh, support the union. Uh, it also doesn't get us real far in terms of analyzing the constitutional question. Uh, the, the argument here is that uh, you know, the longstanding legal precedent says you can't be forced to support the union's political activity, its donations to candidates, its political <clears throat> statements. What people and the plaintiffs are saying in this case is that, well, there's no separating the two, because if you're negotiating for wages, work conditions, issues of privatizing services, pensions for public employees, all of that is public policy. And if I don't support the union's view of those issues, how can I be made under the First Amendment? How can I be forced to help pay for it? Let's talk about a uh, an election that took place in New York, John, that normally we wouldn't be talking about. But Joe Crowley, who's the number four Democrat, who's about to be the former number four Democrat, who a lot of people view it as a legitimate candidate to challenge Nancy Pelosi, either as the majority leader or speaker, he loses. He loses to a young woman, 28 years old, who had been a, a Bernie activist, was a bartender just a couple years ago, said, I'm jumping in. I'm a more representative of my district. Congress is too old. Embrace the Sanders positions. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 
she won decisively. It wasn't close. Uh, Crowley hasn't faced a primary channel uh, challenge since 2004. He outspent her 18 to 1. What does this say about where the Democrats are at right now, the energy, what matters in 18, and what matters also in the 2020 presidential race? That the Democratic Party is going through convulsions, different but quite similar in some in some sense to the Republican Party in terms of significant change and challenge to the former establishment at this point. Now, I think that this election means a whole lot in terms of a younger generation coming into politics, what their values are, the extraordinary power of storytelling. If you look at how she was able to present yeah. herself to her constituents no and how she was able to do it on a, on a shoestring budget through social media and through the old-fashioned way, and credit to her, any candidate who does this, by getting out there and shaking hands and knocking on doors that normally don't get knocked on in the South Bronx. And she was able to tell a story. And meanwhile, the incumbent was more remote in Washington, didn't engage in debates. And I think that it really might tell things across the country in terms of this next generation of Democratic candidates, which, by the way, might manifest itself right here in Minneapolis in the 5th District. Yeah. If you think of her generational and, uh, you know, life story appeal is somewhat similar to Ilan Omar, who, of right. course, just got the 5th District DFL n- nomination in, in a quickly put together convention they have with Representative Ellison now running for attorney general of the state of Minnesota. So, you know, watch this space nationally as well as locally. And I think that Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leadership really have to look at this, wonder what's happening with their party and I think it will only embolden candidates to take her on if indeed they win the majority in the, spe- in the House of Representatives to see who will be the next Speaker of the House. DJ, the comparison has been made to Eric Cantor years ago sure. when he was that high within the Republican position and that he w- was viewed as cakewalk, right? And John's right. I mean, Crowley here, he skipped multiple debates. Sure. He sent representatives. Cantor approached a little bit the same way and also Dave Bratt within his own party. Mm-hmm was energized by the Tea Party, was energized by immigration, and beat Cantor. And a lot of people said that kind of showed the the route for Donald Trump and others to go that way. Are there the 2020 presidential candidates who are either going to jump in because of this or are going to say, guess what, it's just not my time? Well, on the presidential race, I mean, if somebody uh, uh, you know thinks they can out- Trump, Trump. I, I wish him luck on the, the Republican <laughs> yeah. side. Uh, on the Democratic side, you know, I mean, I think the the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, correct, uh, Cory Booker wing, and and there, you know, there's probably a lot more. There's a there's a further left wing than that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I think they have every reason to think that that's where the energy lies. And as John says, we've seen it. Uh, you know, in the internal party processes that we've had here in Minnesota, not just with Omar, but Tim Waltz couldn't get the uh, mm-hmm. endorsement uh, in the governor's race. Lori Swanson couldn't get uh, endorsed as the incumbent, uh, or at least she decided that it didn't look good on the uh, uh, attorney general's race. We've seen it in Minneapolis with Barb Johnson and Blong Vang, the the two moderates on the city council, yeah. both ousted, uh, although they, you know, had, had uh, seemingly pretty solid hold on their seats. So we see it really everywhere you look, uh, and in both parties, the energy is is on the edges. 
Uh, and I think that's what we're going to continue to see for quite some while. And I, it, yes, it could affect the presidential race in yep. the Democratic side. For sure. I concur with DJ on all of that, and that especially as he says that the energy is on the edges, but yet in a general election, the votes are still in the center. And so, are they know, still? I do believe they are. That that the center of the country still will decide this election. There's no doubt that really energized people, as DJ says, on the edges you know, propelled Donald Trump's candidacy forward. And he, of course, eventually became president and pushed Bernie Sanders to give Secretary Clinton an extraordinary primary and caucus challenge. But the if you look at public opinion polls and where people stand on issues, it's still generally more of a, of a centrist nation. So, you know, in some way, you know, these two directions aren't necessarily matching where I think most people are. And the ability of one of those candidates to sway them to their side will tell the story of 2020. We get kind of deeply into a political science discussion here. But yet what John says is true. The bulk of the people are toward the center. But the parties have long since and candidates have long since realized that the margin of victory comes from the edges. Because the margin of victory is pretty yeah. small in, in the 50-50 nation. Or, or at least even putting yourself in position to be on the ballot in November. First, you got to get on the ballot. Right. That's right. And it's always been that way, but it's just taken further. Let, let's just jump in there because I just have a few minutes left, DJ. Um, how do you think Jacob Fry and Chief Arredondo are handling the follow-up from the police shooting, Thurman Blevins Jr., Saturday night in Minneapolis, whether he had a weapon, what was said, what was said to him, the history of animosity and lack of trust in that area. Now the mayor saying in the next, I don't, uh, fairly soon he wants to get the video out there after speaking with the family and after all the witnesses. So this would be a little atypical for the BCA to put the video out this soon. Well, I think their response has been, you know, notably active and responsive, uh, voicing a uh, a lot of concern and understanding. I noticed that the police chief didn't decide to go camping uh, at the moment uh, that this thing happened. Yep. He instead went to the scene yep. uh, and and immediately took charge of the situation. The mayor similarly has, uh, uh, you know, has been has been very open and and effective in conveying concern. Now to the video question, this is a this is a practical difficulty for investigators. The video, like any other evidence that they may possess, yeah. uh, is something they would like to keep any target of the investigation from knowing until they have a chance to get Absolutely. their story, as well as other witnesses. I mean, how do you, how do you test the credibility of a witness, whether yeah. they're a suspect <clears throat> or just someone making an accusation? Well, you compare what they tell you with what you know that they don't know. Over a series of time. Right. And once they know everything you know, you, your ability to get to the truth is diminished. And that's the reason that that they don't, at least that's the non-corrupt reason. Sometimes yeah. there may be corrupt right. reasons, sure. but the, the, the legitimate reason that they don't want to release this kind of information too early is that it undermines their ability to get at the truth. John, I thought if, that was very if, well stated. If he right? says... You know, he's saying now after all the interviews, we'll release it. Well, if the interviews have really been done, then yeah. then maybe that's a distinction without a difference, and it's, he's trying to be responsive. But but we'll see. But but they need to be careful with that. I completely concur with DJ as, and Chad. I agree. It was very well stated. I would only add that 
you know, Mayor Fry and any elected official comes in with ideas, dreams, plans, and people to move those initiatives forward, and yet often they're defined by events mm-hmm. that they cannot predict and can def- and can define, in this case, his, his tenure as mayor. And so it's quite striking how quickly and how much and how hands-on and on the ground that he's trying to react and try to get ahead of this. Excellent stuff, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you. DJ Tykes and John Rash from the Star Tribune. Chad Hartman here from CCO. Check it out, WCCORadio.com or StarTribune.com. If you'd like to listen to this or check us out with Play in Politics anytime you would like.